0: Inside Books with Breeda Brown.
1: Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breeda Brown, and in each episode of Inside Books, we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers, and more. You'll find Inside Books on SoundCloud or iTunes, and our Twitter handle is at InsideBooks where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. My guest today is Pat McCabe, the Monaghan-born author, who has written The Butcher Boy and Breakfast on Pluto both of which were shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize His other work includes Music on Clinton Street The Dead School and Winterwood which was named the 2007 Irish Novel of the Year He has written stage plays radio plays and short stories but his latest work is another novel It's called Heartland and it's his first full-length novel in a decade It's based in the Irish Midlands, Pat and it's been described as having a combination of dark psychology and pitch black humour. They would be very normal Pat McCabe characteristics really, wouldn't they?
0: Well, it'd be very normal for the kind of p- characters that live in these places, you know, because I didn't invent the combination of humour and pitch black kind of menace and all the rest of it. That's kind of has been an Irish rural speech going far back as John Millington Singh or you know, Joyce, uh, all sorts of uh, people have written this. It's very much in Irish folklore as well.
1: And is it a case that you write about sort of that small town mentality as such, because that's what you know?
0: Yeah, it's partly that, but this is kind of more mountainy kind of, Midlands kind of bog territory. Well, there, isn't, there isn't much talk about a, uh, so much a small town, although that's there. All right. This is more to do with the kind of imaginative landscape of America and of rural Ireland because there are an awful lot of overlaps in this metaphorical speech.
1: Yeah. And there's, I found that there's a really strong feel of a Western about it, like a Western movie. And even some of the characters in the book have those Western style names, you know, Red Campbell, Big Barney Guru. So was that, you know, wh- where did they come from?
0: Movies, really. Right. Um in the 50s, there were an awful lot of Westerns shown in Ireland and various other places, and lots of people in rural Ireland had name, nicknames that came from Westerns, you know. But uh, when I came of age, I was very interested in American cinema, particular cinema of the 70s. And while it's kind of drawn from a lot of those Western movies, it's also got its genesis in thriller movies, which should be like... Um, kind of forgotten movies now, like The Outfit was Robert Duvall, Catherine Bigelow's second movie, which is about psychobilly vampires, is called Near Dark. And the thing that they've got in common is that they create their own language. So what I wanted to do in Heartland was certainly write about a recognizable rural landscape, but that the language be heightened and it would be uh, sort of encapsulated between two covers and wouldn't exist outside them.
1: And that is characteristic, though, I think as well of your of nearly all your writing. You sort of you you are able to get under the skin of the characters right in a particular style for them so that we as the reader just can totally understand who they are, even whether they are mad individuals like kidnappers or murderers or or psychopaths. I suppose
0: it demands uh, requests, a certain leap of the imagination. I mean, there are books that I've written that people didn't have any respect for or interest in at all, you know, that they thought this was a total misfire. But for me, that's not the issue. For me, it's a kind of a, like one long book that you keep writing from different, the same kind of people of the same tribe observed from a different angle each time. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. I, I would like to think that all together they work.
1: And where do the ideas that, where do they come from?
0: I suppose, like any author, you never quite know. I mean, it's a cliche at this stage, and it's very easy to wax lyrical and pretentiously about it, you know. Oh, one does this and one feels. The fact is that it's a a kind of a prairie primal impulse to tell a story and to listen to stories, and that combined with some kind of need to make sense. Like, Ireland is a very peculiar country in many ways, and... uh, you know, it's had a very fractured, we all know that, very fractured kind of upbringing. And now it's in a period where it, th- it almost thinks it has come of age, you know, in some peculiar way that it's acquired a maturity. Even the overstatement of which kind of would beg the question, well, why do you keep saying it then if you're so so uh, kind of comfortable with it? Yeah. Um, I think that it's an ongoing kind of thing, This it being in the Western seaboard in the shadow of a, you know, post-emperial, imperial nation that's enthralling in its own way, musically and socially to America. It's a very peculiar place and uh, uh, all of these books have, on one level impishly and another le- level quite philosophically tried to do justice to the world you grow up in.
1: But it is, you know, I suppose, looking back on your portfolio of, of work as well, it nearly is like a a social history of Ireland. You've dealt with so many different themes, you know, and Catholicism and and sex abuse and lots of other issues that are in there. How do you think Ireland today now compares to, you know, the, the times that you've written about in the past? Have we progressed?
0: Some ways, yes. Other ways, regressed. Um, I think the very fact of this constant proclamation that Ireland is now to come of age of the modern world is an indication of provincialism of the highest order, anyway. Uh, I think that its um, salacious embrace of consumer capitalism is to be not deplored, because I like things, I like people to have money and I like people mm. to be healthy, but in the absence of any kind of moral kind of uh, interrogation of that. Witness the fall of the church for all sorts of reasons. I don't really think you can have a rampant behemoth of the military industrial complex gobbling up a small country without moral consequences. And I think perhaps that should be looked at a little bit. But by and large, compared to the world that I grew up in, which was just after TB, which was kids, you know, who were half starved, basically. It's immeasurably improved.
1: And even going back to that time frame, uh, as you said, and cinema was important to you growing up, music was important to you growing up, and comic books and Mm. sort of that vivid imagination and fantasy world were important. And you can see all of that coming through in your work.
0: You can. I think it's like what was very um, exciting about that world, both in England and Ireland and America, is that these democratic art forms like the cinema and comic books, which were very cheap, they were available to everybody. And uh, so... And, you know, obviously you weren't going to be going to the the Royal Opera House if you grew up in Wicklow or (laughs) small town uh, Monaghan. But, you know, there was a really good library, a really good cinema and, and and no end of comic books. And that really fed everything that I became, such as it might be as a writer and still does, actually, because I still, you know, avail of those do you still read them? I do, yeah. Are you? I get them on eBay now.
1: Oh, really? Mm. Right. Old ones are more uh, modern ah, ones that well, it, it's,
0: it's It's a really difficult thing to explain. But if I see a comic book now that doesn't look like the comic book, if I see a Batman movie where Batman and Superman are fighting... <laughs> I get deeply depressed. I get sad because it's the wrong Batman and it's the wrong superman and they shouldn't be fighting anyway.
1: They're rewriting the narrative and it's not it's, good. Not, it's not working. Mm-hmm. And interestingly then, you were you were a teacher as well in in the earlier part of your career. But your first published book was actually a children's
0: book. It was called The Adventures of Shea Mouse. It's a lifetime ago now, but I used to cycle around Balbriggan on a little bicycle with copies of it and ask them to take you know five or six in the local newsagents, and they never sold. So, anybody oh, who was thinking that you could make a living out of writing in those days probably gone back a bit like that now.
1: And again, did the comic books influence that? I suppose, the yeah, adventures, they did. Of yeah, that. yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when then did the writing start properly?
0: Oh, it had started long before I wrote the, the Shame House book. I was writing, you know, compulsively since I was very young. Um, I was writing, I suppose. Endless essays and compositions, as they used to be called uh, when I was nine or ten, and uh, they used to get a little bit of notice in the little primary school in Clonus, and that's a great kind of encouragement for a young boy or girl when someone likes their stories. They mightn't think you were much of a footballer or they mightn't think you were much of a tennis player. But if they like your stories, you kind of think, well, I might have some place in this world.
1: And did that influence your route, your choice to go down the teaching route then? Did no, you think you could combine both? I find both?
0: Into teaching by accident, like a lot of people of my generation. It's not like, you know, coming into this lovely studio for a podcast, talking to yourself. Because things, things like that didn't exist. The opportunities for, for girls, nursing, uh, maybe post office, bank. For boys, it was uh, ESB teaching of the guards you know there was no industrial base in Ireland it was getting off its, off its hind legs all right but um, in the early 70s you know what your parents were absolutely adamant about for reasons that perhaps generations today don't quite understand but for, for that generation the struggle for survival was everything so they didn't want their children to be running off to England growing their hair long and banging guitars you wanted them to get a good steady job, so that was I was encouraged to do that, and lucky enough to get it in, into it, I suppose.
1: And then the first publishing deal. When did that happen?
0: Well, you wouldn't even have called it deals in those days. Right. It's kind of indicative of how yoked to the whole notion of consumerism that the business of writing, which is more akin to the act of prayer, as far as I'm concerned, has actually become because everybody without realizing it now talks about deals. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just common parlance. It's not a criticism. Everybody does it. But the thing it, about it is there was no such thing as deals then. I mean, I was start, published that book um, Shamehouse with a little publisher called Raven Arts, with whom I'm back now. They're now called New Island, but they started off basically in the front room of a house. It was a little cottage industry. And if two or three hundred people bought your book, you thought you were doing pretty good. And that was true for a lot of eminent writers at that time.
1: And so it was nearly like nearly a handshake deal as opposed to a, an a hand- actual was no written contract. There was no money contract, involved for anybody. contract yeah. You would a couple of more novels obviously after that but I suppose just to jump forward a little bit the mainstream and using the word mainstream yeah. on purpose success then would have come in the form of the Butcher Boy. Hmm. Um... And again, that was about a young boy who created a fantasy world. There's that word, fantasy again, uh, to escape, I suppose, his, his daily life, which was which was pretty dysfunctional. And where did that character of Francie Brady come from? I mean, again, did he come fully formed to you one day or was it bits of different people that you knew?
0: Well, the character very rarely comes fully formed. It's like you have to discover the the nature of the character, what... Wear what they think about what they eat, and that comes over a long period, but it might be over a longer period than you think. I mean, when I first thought of that book, I was about nine or ten years of age, really, that Mm. young,
1: considering the not not so
0: much the book as the story or the feel of the story, which was based on a a folk song called He Lies in Armagh Jail. About uh, because I think you you freight your history along with you, you know, and the the murder in question had happened a hundred years before, but I knew it through folk song and through the stories of the. The uh, elderly people in the in the town I grew up in, but had forgotten all about it, and then started. To, so you you're writing something that uh, you can't quite name. It's like, uh, and you don't set it off as this is some major task, or you're going to, you know. Forging the smithy of your soul, the uncreated conscience of your race, like Joyce said. And you're Mm -hmm. just trying to figure out what it is that's swirling around in your head and put a a narrative shape on it. And that's really what it it was like a folk song, basically. And
1: why do you think that particular book captured people's imagination?
0: Look, uh, the reason for that, really, I don't think it'd be published now. That's my considered opinion. Why? Um, I think it would be. I remember a guy saying, I looked at your book there. It seems all right, but it's all spelled wrong, he said. Oh, right. And okay. I said, oh, "That's a really trenchant criticism." Why do you think that? He said, "Oh, it's all big one big long sentence. I can't make a head nor tail of it." He said. I said, "Well, you know, it's a stream of consciousness." Oh, I don't know what it is. He said, "I couldn't make a head nor tail of it anyway." Okay. So that was fine. So I think that would might be the view of a lot of publishers now. They said, "This is a hard sell." There's no play. The reason that it was picked up, number, I, I suspect this, was a period in the early nineties on Ireland after being kind of associated with the troubles and. Awkward builders, labourers, and people who drink too much, and people who are a bit funny sometimes, and other times not so funny, all that stuff that we all know so well. With the advent of the peace process and the IRA ceasefire and river dance, actually, mm-hmm. a few other things, a confluence of a few influences all came those together. Cultural things. Cultural confluence, shall we say. This is only an opinion now, I'm not sure that this is entirely correct, but you will notice around that period an awful lot of Irish writers came to the fore. And it isn't as if, you know, Ireland suddenly produced a brilliant crop of writers. There were always writers in Ireland, but you didn't hear them because it was very, very difficult to get published at that time. The price of paper had soared. So ultimately, publishing, like anything else, is driven by money. And if they're going to lose a whole lot of money, they're not going to do it. Or maybe it takes a while before they realise that they're not recouping their investment and then abandon it. But this was at the beginning of this thing. Ireland became trendy. That's basically what happened. And then, when that was exhausted, they moved on to India, they moved on to Scotland and various other places. And now it's kind of reached its own level whereby young writers coming through will tell you, and I've spoken to enough of them now, that it's very, very difficult to get... You'll get one book published, and if that doesn't sell, it'll be like the music industry whereby... You know, you don't take a three-album three, three album deal risk on anyone.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, interesting what you're saying there about Ireland becoming trendy and all of that. But that said, you were recognised outside of Ireland because you were shortlisted for that book for the Man Booker Prize.
0: Well, that's my very point. It, it was because Ireland was seen as trendy from a London metropolitan view, which hadn't been the case before, that I availed of that little window <laughs> of opportunity or was pushed into a position Uh, Because I had sent the book to other people, you know, and uh, there had been uh, murmurs of admiration, but...
1: Nobody willing to to take the punt? No, really, no. And the man booker then, what, what was your reaction when you heard you were shortlisted for that?
0: To be honest, it was like a fairy story because my wife and I had two very small children and I had kind of, for one reason or another decided to relocate to London, which was a very difficult thing to do at the time because it was the height of the property boom And Thatcher's You know, two small children in London. Mm-hmm. It's not the easiest thing in the world to get a place for, to live. And uh, it was pretty difficult, shall we say. And uh, there's something kind of lovely for man and woman or man and man or any, or any combination of partnerships that you get these days. When you triumph... And adversity together mm-hmm. there's something magical about that that you you know when it's shared when anything like that is shared if you do it on your own it's good but it's not as good if you, you did it together the partnership well there's a kind of a indissoluble bond there that, that you, you came through this thing together in a way and that's what happened like at the gats I'd been writing these things and I was kind of ashamed really I was trying to explain to my wife you know that she was an artist herself so, but she perhaps wasn't as urgent about it as I was
1: ashamed of what?
0: I was ashamed that I had made these claims that I was a writer and I wasn't getting anywhere and it wasn't beginning to look like I was ever going to get anywhere and was I just whistling up a gum tree or whatever. So, like any writer, you send things off and they come back, you know, and I just was embarrassed, to be honest. So I had uh, written this thing and I sent it off and forgotten about it and thought it would sell maybe 1,000 copies. It sold about two or 3,000. Right. And somebody noticed it or... You don't quite know how these things happen.
1: Look, sometimes, as you say and, yourself, oh, no, combination but, of... No, no,
0: no, I think, you see, this. Is what I'm saying about Ireland. People were paying attention to Irish voices in a way, mm-hmm. not, not passionately now, because they are commercial people, but they were interested. And so suddenly this quirky little thing comes along and it pricks their interest. And enough people liked it and... I nearly fainted it, actually. <laughs> I'm not joking, you because... Yeah. But it was very funny. I used to pick the kids up from uh, the after-schools club. Do they have them in Ireland? now? they used to have them in England at that time. They do they in didn't certain go to five parts o'clock, of the country, yeah. yeah. So we brought them, I used to bring them home and feed them a bit of lunch. And there was a little policeman's son there and the kids were all talking about this Booker Prize. They hadn't a clue what it was, but you just say prize to a child. And so we got lift light off. We got lift off. Right. Well, this little guy, any of the policeman's son, was listening to this. He was about six. He just couldn't get... Into what this might be, this prize. But when the conversation eventually ebbed, diminished, he interjected and he just, uh, sipped his orange squash. He said, My dad has a boil on his nose. <laughs> and this was his, like, they thought maybe his this, comparative would quali- story. this would qualify him for some <laughs> of the kind of, uh, you know, uh, what's the superfluous kudos that might be accruing to him for the kind of this. And it was one of those moments that when your ch- children are small, there's a little kid saying that. Out of the mouths of babes, isn't that right? But then you might win the bloody thing. That yeah. was the thing. So I was in my mid-thirties at that time. So it was a golden period.
1: And was the fact that you were, I suppose, slightly older, did that help?
0: Well, it helped me in the way that I dealt with it. Yeah. There's no question about that. Because, From an
1: emotional perspective, exactly. Oh,
0: certainly. Because, yeah. you know, if you got, so- if you got that kind of... I remember that the, the commercial publishing world is quite ruthless. You know, because although I don't uh, attach a huge amount of importance to one's position in the pecking order, a novel why they do. So if you're not selling or your views are damning and all the rest of it, the phone mysteriously stops ringing. Like mm-hmm. anyone, anyone would tell you that and there's a thing that they used to use in uh, publishing and perhaps here, too. We're so excited. We are so excited have you on board.
1: And it was such new news I suppose for Ireland, for the yes. Irish literary industry at the time, so did you end up feeling a bit of pressure as a result?
0: Well it was it was pressure that I welcomed because having been through what we'd been through of moving it, you know, if you with, with the young family and all the pressures that are on you as a partnership you withstand that, well there's very little that you can't withstand after that, so um I had developed a skill over the various rejections around the of, of not letting that affect what you might write,
1: mm-hmm. and just let just focus on on what you want to do.
0: Yeah, it wasn't that hard actually. Mm.
1: So, um, you know, we'll, we'll come back to that time period now again. But you were nominated again mm. a couple of years later, then for Breakfast on Pluto. So, were like, were you sitting there? Did you faint again?
0: No, I'd become <laughs> I'd become kind of more uh, accustomed blasé at this point, point. and. Uh, I don't really have any kind of memories. Once it's happened once, it can't really happen again. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it was, it it, it didn't affect me in the same way.
1: And were you disappointed not to win on either occasion?
0: Not at all. I I don't really agree with this thing of competition in art anyway. I mean, it is the old thing of we award the prize to the apple as opposed to the orange. It just doesn't make any sense. You know. So
1: do you think that art should be created for the artist or for people to consume it then?
0: Well, I certainly don't like the word consume. Hmm. Uh, because this is the problem that I have with the modern world that, uh, you know, 63 uh, year old men always have problems with the modern world. There's nothing. <laughs> Where do new you start? Yeah. yeah. But what is troubling is that in the orgy of consumption, you know, how many more dinners can we see televised? I mean, I, mean, it, I know it's enjoyable and everything else. But art is more like prayer. Art is a very private, sacred thing. And, you know, if we're going to reduce it to the best novel and the best portrait and the best a roll of drums and this sensational. It's kind of a little bit embarrassing to me, Uh, you know, because when I think of John McGarhane or Joyce, I really do not see them on novels with the stars, you know, where John steps into the spotlight and everyone stands there. And Louis Walsh or someone says, and the winner is. And that's what they're reducing, you know, great art to that level now. And it is a period that will pass.
1: But great art will always have longevity, though.
0: Mm, Maybe, maybe not. I mean, people do... Fade, you know, and they may come back and they may not. But like the
1: likes it. of Oscar Wilde or John or Look at the
0: likes of William Trevor. Mm-hmm. William Trevor died a year or two ago. And I asked a bookseller, just as a little experiment, because I think about these things. Would he let me know the figures of the rise in sales of William Trevor? Because if Elvis dies, his his album's triple. He said, of course I will. I'll come back in three weeks. And I went back in three weeks. And I said, what's the, what's the verdict? He said, I sold one. Interesting. You know, I'm not saying that William Travers has faded or anything else. But we would be very foolish to think, you know, that there is a guarantee, an inbuilt guarantee, that great art will survive. Sure, you can mention Oscar Wilde. Mention Lemo Flaherty. Mention um, Nora Holt, for example, or um, Elizabeth Bowen. How many people do you hear outside of the Academy discussing them?
1: So should we be doing more then to focus on the brilliant other Irish writing that we have from this country over the years that we don't hear about I as much. I don't
0: think there's any obligation on anybody to do anything or there's any duty or either. But there is in their, in their private lives to think, particularly when people are rearing children, uh, to think that this orgiastic TV tube kind of thing or the constant time we spend in screens, there may be a consequence for it. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think there will be from a... A, a developing, let's say, interactions between people, because you find people have their head on their phone all the time. They are not talking. as Well, there much have been many studies
0: on the, you know, the effect this has had on empathy, you know, and young teenagers, and you know, you know, there are very troubling things happening in that teenage landscape. You mm. know, I don't have the language for it, and you know, I read in the paper about missing girls, and oh, so why is this happening? This is a very new thing to me. I'm sure it's happened in history. But having reared two daughters, tried to, I I know what an emotional minefield the years between 12 and for boys, too. Let's not forget. Mm -hmm. But it does seem to be like a amplified, amplified for, uh, you know, the ages, the girls of that age. And, you know, it is a kind of a a strange time uh, in in the collapse of institutions Mm. in a way that I don't remember.
1: Are we nearly creating our own rules?
0: Maybe it's a learning time, you know. Mm. People will need these things. They need something because the world is a chaotic place. Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, you know, we've been talking there about, I suppose, you know, the great Irish work or great Irish talent. What's your view on new talent that's emerging then in the writing scene at the moment?
0: Well, it's extraordinary that, like, uh, the speed with which an awful lot of writers are pu- publishing books, you know, and I suppose technology has had a huge impact on that. I was teaching in America last year in Pittsburgh. A lot of my students would have been about twenty, twenty-one. I used to see them every day, predominantly female, I have to say, in Starbucks with laptops, working on these programmes like Scrivener and beating out novels and short stories at a furious rate of knots. And, uh, you know, I can't imagine having such a prodigious output. Uh, and what would you kind
1: of. do normally yourself? Does it depend on the day?
0: Well, I'm such an old dinosaur that I write everything longhand anyway. You still? Yeah, I still do, yeah.
1: And that's just your your preferred format.
0: Well, I have, I've got six or seven computers, but I only use them for for editing. Really, you know. I think it's because it flows through the veins into the pen. Mm-hmm. I honestly, believe that. If you're sitting in a, you know, in an imperious kind of position. with your back rigid and it's almost like you've decided you know better than your characters. I don't really think that's the case, you know.
1: Hopefully that's not one of your characters ringing you now, is it?
0: If you ever put me in a book again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Was it anybody important? No, no. Um, And interestingly, we had crime author Joe Spain in with us recently who told us that she can write up to 10,000 words a day. She mm. said, basically, it mm. flows out. Yeah. And the only reason that she can, she stops is because her hands are too, sto- mm. too sore well, I from
0: typing. I I'd believe that. And I, see it, I used to see it. I think that uh, there has been... It'd be, make an interesting study, you know, and I think technology has it. You can sit down and just type it all up. And, yeah, can you imagine doing that in a typewriter? Mm-hmm. You know, Packet even an old golf ball. Did you ever hear of those? No. They were the big invention in the 1980s when my wife was the secretary. The golf ball was the equivalent of the, you know, the the modern microch-
1: day computer. Yeah. Ah. yeah, and you know, just on that Heartland, which is is the latest book. It's your first novel in ten years now. In the meantime, you've been busy with radio plays and mm. short stories and novellas and all of that. But why ten years?
0: Well, as I say, I don't really think of the form. You like I in in nineteen or about four years ago I produced to me it was a novel really. It was two books together, as Hello Mr Bones and Goodbye, Mr Rat. You know, whether it's a long novel or a short novel, it doesn't really matter to me. Um this this is a I suppose you would describe it as a full length novel, but as I've said before, or tried to articulate, the the entire kind of output, whatever it such as it might be, that's the novel. You know, it's all chopped up into little novels but the big story is, is the one I'm interested in.
1: And do you work on different things at the same time or are you somebody who has to focus on one project I know at I a can time? work
0: on different things at the, ta- at the same time. Like I was working with Cork Dorka while I was writing this. They're a theatre group based in Cork and uh, I had great fun with them. We did a big pageant in Cork prison. Um, that was exciting, but it's a different kind of discipline in a way. Mm-hmm. You're working with other people, but a novel... You have to be focused on your own and I wouldn't tell anybody about it much or anything.
1: Would you not? Would you? you? Know. And in terms of the plot then, do you just leave it in your head or do you write notes and work from that? Oh, endless or?
0: notes, yeah. Endless notes, ridiculous amount. Because particularly with this one where you've got seven people, it's very easy to overlap and it's very easy to get plot points wrong. So you need you need some kind of mathematical structure in your head. Not too much, but some. And do you read while you're writing? No, oh, yeah. I read all the time. And what do you like? Everything from detective thrillers to women's magazines to <laughs> comic a- books. <laughs> a- comic books. Anything at all, yeah. yeah.
1: And, and what else are you working on now now that this one is on the shelves?
0: Well I'm working on a kind of an Irish folktale for the modern world, but uh, I don't really know anything about it much because it's all kind of forming. But it's old fashioned and postmodern at the same time.
1: And is it where's it based?
0: It's based partly in London and partly in the mountains of West Kerry, believe it or not. Which oh. I've never even been there, but it, it kind of uh, imagined them.
1: So it's your your imagination is at work again? Well,
0: it's a folktale, yeah, I Run Riot.
1: Right, OK. Yeah. And you have been described in the past as having a wild and savage imagination.
0: I think it's probably true.
1: And what, what goes on in your head?
0: Well, it's it probably been weaned on those uh, comic books and everything. And um, it wouldn't be everybody now that could tolerate it or listen to it.
1: Does it it make you think anything is possible?
0: Certainly in fiction it does, but not, not in the world. I think there has been so much that we couldn't have dreamed of that has happened in the last 10 years. The idea that you have a phone with no wires, that you can contact anybody at any moment, and that we're all being watched through Facebook at every second of the day. That's unimaginable, but it's happened, and it's only the beginning of something that is even more unimaginable, I should think.
1: Where is it all going to lead?
0: Well, it'll lead right back to the same old thing, you know, like, do I matter in the world or do I not? That's and where it'll lead.
1: Do you think we'll all go full circle again and just move away from that constant digital screen time that happening. we have at the moment?
0: It's already happening. You hear the conversations of 19 and 20 year olds and uh, they've seen the effects of this. They're coming through all that and every uh, you know, generation reacts. to them. But, you know, they see the neurosis of their parents and they say, well, I'm not going to do it that way and every generation thinks they're going to improve it, and sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. But the fundamentals don't change, and I suppose that's why you include them all in your fiction, that... You know, when I was telling you the story, such as it is sentimental about the young guy saying, well, my place in the world is that my dad has a boil in his nose. Mm-hmm. That's as valid as the, all the glittering prizes in the world.
1: And sure it's probably going to give you an awful lot more opportunities then to, to write about it, you know, yeah. work over the next while. Pat, before you go, can we ask you maybe to, to read a little bit from Heartland? There's the book there.
0: Okay.
1: It'll be uh, great to hear it in your own
0: voice. All right. To their amazement they watched as Tony Begley turned around and walked away staring out at the wavering willow. Trees. Did you know they can sometimes scream in pain? Even communicate underground, he said. "Mm, The willow's a loner and its seeds fly far away many miles. Birch And wipe the other trees away, because the birch is a bully. But all the same, each tree in its own way is a special kind of poem, all the time sending little messages underground, kind of like electrical signals. He was the only man I ever really loved, they heard him say. William Walter.
1: Walter Monroe Pat McCabe thank you for joining us here on Inside Books and you'll find Pat's novel Heartland in all bookshops now
0: Thank you very much Breida.
1: The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details the handle is at Inside Books IRE and if you want to hear other episodes just search for us on SoundCloud or iTunes I'm Breida Brown until next time keep reading
0: Inside Books is a unique media production.